Uh, welcome uh, to Redeemer. It's good to see you uh, here today and be with you. Uh, my name is Lawson. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you uh, after the service and, and speak with you. Um, we are in a series called DNA, The Values That Shape Us. This is the third week of our series. It's, a, it's four values, one each week. Uh, and and we, we really see these as, as values that are core to our church. And, and don't think of that in a corporate, corporate-y way. Uh, we are not a, a business. Uh, we are a church family. And, and we really believe this, this is who God has made us and who he's calling us to be. Uh, the, the first uh, week of the, of the series, we talked about being alive by the word. Alive by the word. And we love the scriptures. The scriptures point us to and reveal Jesus. And he gives us life. And that's foundational. We, we have no life if it's not for Jesus. On the second week, last week, Pastor Kevin uh, taught on convictional kindness. Convictional kindness. So we, we are people who love the truth. Right? We hold to the truth. We're unapologetic about the truth. Um, and we, we do that with kindness. We do that with gentleness because of the kindness of God, how he has been gentle with us, how he has been kind with us and has called us into that. And, and today, uh, we are talking about joyful seriousness. Joyful seriousness. And you can see the contrasting sort of ideas continuing. Um, and, uh, and so this is what we're going to, to unpack uh, today. We're going to ask kind of three questions or three sections here of the sermon. We're going to ask, what is it? What is joyful seriousness? Uh, I'm going to give three examples. We're going to see it in three different places. And then we're going to ask, how does this value shape us as a church family? Let's pray uh, once more and we'll, we'll dive in. If you will, take a moment uh, just in your seats to pray for yourself. Pray that God would open your heart to whatever he has to say to you today. Would you pray for me um, that I would be faithful to God's word, that I would be helpful to you? Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for your word. Would you speak to us? We need you. You're, you're all we have. And so please come and please, as please speak to us. In Jesus' name, I ask these things. Amen. All right, joyful seriousness. What, what is it? What do we mean by this? Well, uh, we, joyful, so first of all, joyful. We, we don't mean, uh, first of all, some sort of uh, morose joy, okay? Uh, so I think you see this sometimes, especially in religious, uh, you know, religious circles. It's like, we are filled with the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord flows out of our hearts from our deep conviction, right? It's like, okay, I don't see it though, uh, right? We, we, we actually want to be joyful, right? We, this should show on our faces, show in our lives. We should express this joy as real joy. We also don't mean uh, a kind of a flippancy, there, there is a, and can be a fake sort of joy, uh, a fake, you know, a kind of a, 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 yeah, a fake joy, right? That, that is not real joy. It's not deep joy. It's just kind of surfacey, right? It's surface level uh, flippancy. And we're just going to act happy you know, even though we're not really deep down. And we, that, we don't want that either, right? We want to be and we want to actually be joyful, happy, right? Fulfilled, at peace, deeply glad. And we want that to, to show 
Um, and and in, in seriousness, so by seriousness, uh, we're getting at that we are joyful because we, are, we take God and we take our situation seriously. Right, another way to say this would be, uh, we think joy comes through fully embracing the weight of reality. Okay, um, let me start with a, with a chart for you today. If you like charts, then you came to a good sermon. Uh, the, this chart is from uh, the Gospel Centered Life, uh, and it's by, uh, by Bob Thune and Will Walker. It's, it's just a great, uh, it's, it's a great chart that I think summarizes the Christian life and, and growth in the Christian life. Um, and, and if you can see there, the, the line represents time, so time's Moving on in the, the, the crossroads there, or the, the divert, the, where the lines divert, is, a, uh, is conversion. So this is when you become a Christian. Um, and when, when you become a Christian, when you trust Jesus, uh, the, something happens, uh, the, the, and the minimum, right, at, at least. Uh, and what happens is you become aware of two things. You become aware of God's holiness, right, of his standard, um, and and you, you, be, you begin to gain some awareness of that. At the same time, uh, you begin to be aware of your own sinfulness, right, and your own flesh. And you, so you realize, this is who God is, this is what he's called me to, and wow, I don't measure up to that. Wow. Um, and then you hear the good news, right? You hear the news about Jesus. You hear that he came to live for you a righteous life, that he came to die on the cross for your sins, that he died in your place, Right, so you could be forgiven, so you could be brought into the family, so you can be given new life. He, he took your sin, he became your sin, so you could become his righteousness, and you are reconciled to God. You can approach God because of the work of Jesus. And so the cross bridges the gap for that, right, between God's holiness and my sinfulness. And, and you see, and you realize that at first, that, that the cross bridges that gap, and you have joy, you have joy. You can have that next one, Gail. Uh, you, you have, you know, this is the cross, how it bridges the gap between uh, my flesh and sinfulness and God's holiness. Now, um, this next part catches new Christians off guard sometimes um, because uh, you, you realize, so, so as you go along in your Christian life, right, as, you, as you keep walking with Jesus, um, these things actually increase, Right, so, so as you walk with Jesus, you, you, you learn more and more about God and who he is, what he's done. As you, as you walk with him, as he teaches you through his word, through his, his pe- people, through experience, right, you, you start to learn more and more about God and his standard and go, wow, he is so amazing. Um, and, and, and you learn a lot more about your own sinfulness, don't you? Right? You, you think when you come to Christ, you're like, I just gotta, you know, mainly I just gotta stop lying and drinking. Like, that's the main stuff, you know? Uh, and, uh, and, 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 uh, but, but then you realize like, oh, no, no, no. It's like that stuff was just pointers to the deeper stuff, right? The deeper stuff in my heart. I'm actually worse than I ever thought possible. But you realize, oh, Jesus died for this too, right? And so the gospel, right? Jesus, his work, his grace, it becomes greater to you, right? You start to see it at more accurately as, whoa, I can't believe what he did for me. And so your, your appreciation for Jesus grows, and, and this just continues, right? So as you get older, you realize more about who God is um, and you realize more of your own sinfulness. And what happens? Well, the grace of Jesus, it becomes even more precious to you, right? You just love him more. It's amazing. This is why you can read uh, old saints. Like I love reading, uh, like George Mueller is one of my heroes. And if you read his journals, uh, you know, this is a guy, he, you know, he'll be he's in his 80s. These are his journals. And you know, he's living completely devoted to God. He's caring for all these orphans. He's just this wonderful saint. Um, and, and, but if you read his journals, it's, it's like, 
I'm the worst. There is no one more undeserving than me. Uh, yeah, he's like, I am the worst. And Paul says, doesn't he? I'm the, the worst of all sinners. Right? Well, why is that? Why, why, why does he have such a low view of himself? Well, he's realized his sin, right? But he has so much joy because he realizes the grace of Christ. John Newton, uh, on his deathbed, uh, right, what, his last words are recorded to be, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. And we realize that more and more. And, and I think this means that joy in the Christian life continues to increase. Right? Over time, it should. Right? We just get more and more joyful because we recognize what Christ has done for us. And we recognize reality, you see? We take this seriously. We take reality seriously, who God is, who we are, our condition. And, and that, that is the claim. I think it's the Christian claim that joy comes through taking reality of, our, of God, of ourselves, of our situation really seriously. Um, and, and so let's see this in three examples. Three examples, okay? Uh, three places. The first is an idea. The second is a book. Uh, and the third is a, a, a prison story. Okay, so three, three examples here. An idea, a book, and a prison story. First, an idea. And the idea is, is the idea of, of mortality. Right? It's kind of a philosophical idea. Um, it's, it's death, right? That, that uh, we will all die. Um, Irving uh, Yalom wrote a book uh, that, that I read for a, a counseling class. Um, and uh, he, he's a very well-known psychiatrist. Uh, he's the, the father of group therapy, so he's extremely respected uh, and, and well-known practitioner in, in, uh, in secular psychology. Uh, and and he, he, he wrote this book, and in the introduction to the book, I found the introduction to the book so interesting, just because of how, uh, how frank he was in his, uh, in his description of, of some of these things. But he said that mortality, so that, that you're going to die and that everyone you know is going to die, he said this is a recurring theme that comes up with he and his patients. Um, he said, and he said what happens is the, the, the idea of mortality, the fear of death, it brings up in his patients existential questions, right? The existential questions like, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? Is there any meaning in life? And, and he says, and I think he's very honest here. Again, he's, he's a, from, not a Christian. He's from a secular perspective. Uh, he says that you can't get into those questions as a therapist. He's like, you shouldn't try to talk about those. Um, and the reason why is because he says, we are beings who search for meaning and certainty in a universe that has neither. Right, so he says, if we're all just random atoms, like the secular view, if we're just the secular materialist view, if we're just random atoms, we're a big cosmic accident that happens to exist right now. Uh, one day we, everything will burn up and there will be nothing. Uh, then there's no meaning in life to, to look for. So we can't, we can't go for those <laughs> existential questions. And here's what he said. He summed it up in the sentence that just blew me away when I first read it. In therapy... As in life, meaningfulness is a byproduct of engagement and commitment, and that is where therapists must direct their efforts. Not that engagement provides the rational answer to the questions of meaning, but it causes these questions not to matter. And I thought that, he said that so clearly, right? You can't answer the questions of meaning, so try to distract people, right? Try to make them, get, get them committed to something, engaged in something where they find some meaning so that they cannot think about the ultimate questions. What, what, is, what does Christianity say about mortality? How, how, does, uh, how does our faith, how, does this, how do the scriptures address mortality? Well, I, I think it's, it's actually very uh, nuanced and detailed uh, and, 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 and great treatment, right? Um, 
death, we know, for, as, as Christians, death is not in the original design, right? When God created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden, uh, they were meant to live forever in fellowship with him. Uh, but they rebelled against him. They sinned against God. Um, and so they, they fell, right? This is the fall of man. And because of uh, their disobedience, death entered the world. It's part of the curse. It's part of their punishment for sin. And so we know that death is not good. Right? Death is not, it's, it's evil. <laughs> and, and it's not a, a natural part of life. Right? When we, we feel this, don't we? Even, even in, at the best of funerals, you know, someone who's lived a long and fulfilling life, someone who's, who loves the Lord, right? E- even in, the, in that funeral, it still just feels wrong, doesn't it? It just feels bad, right? Well, it, it's because it is. It's not part of the design. It's inhuman that, that people made from the dust, made by God, would go back to the dust from which they were made. Okay, so it's not good. But, but the Bible actually urges us, I don't know if you've thought about this, to think about death, right? Uh, Psalm 39, four and five says, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. It encourages us to think about how short our lives are, how we are simply a breath, how we are so fleeting what if we live 80, 90, 100 years? What, what is that? <laughs> no, it's, a, it's nothing in, in, in the span of eternity. In Psalm 90, 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Right? There's wisdom, the Bible says, in facing our mortality, not in distracting ourselves, but in, in thinking about it in understanding it, in dwelling on, meditating on the fact that we will die. This is why uh, at monasteries, right, the monks had to walk through a graveyard every day. It's why they, they, they kept skulls on their desks to remind them of their mortality uh, because the, the, the Bible encourages that. It says there's wisdom to be had there as we look it squarely in the face. But that's not all. On 1 Corinthians 15 says this, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And Adam all die, right? Death came into the world through Adam, as we said. And in Christ, in one man Christ, all will be made alive. Life comes into the world through Jesus. Jesus came and he came to put death to death, right? He came to willingly submit to death, submit to our punishment, the wages of sin, right? The, the result of sin. We should die, but Christ came and took that punishment for us so that we could be forgiven, we could be reconciled, and we could have eternal life, right? He, um, it, we, we know that he defeated death on the cross, Right? And he one day will defeat death, right? It says the last enemy to be destroyed is that he will put death away forever. We know on the, when we're raised and we're living on the new heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, right? death will be no more. No one will die and again. Right? It will be gone. It will be put to death forever. 
It says that Christ is the, the first fruits. I love that, that image. Right, we have pear, uh, pear trees in our backyard, and just a few months ago, whenever the first pears were ripening, and we you know, pulled them off the tree and took a bite, and it was good, we knew, oh, we have, we're going to have good pears. This is awesome. Right, and that's what the first fruits are. They, they tell us what the rest of the harvest is going to be like. And it says Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. He came back from death. His lungs were deflated for three days and inflated again. His blood was dormant in his veins for three days and started pumping again. He came back. And this is why our hope is not a delusion. Yalom would say that, that uh, this, this, uh, what we're talking about right now is a delusion. It's, a, you know, it's the delusion of an ultimate rescuer who will come and deliver you from death. It's a psychological phenomenon to help people cope with uh, their mortality. But the reason why it's not a delusion is because it's true that Christ rose from the dead. Right? He actually came back. Right? Our faith as Christians, it is not a blind faith that will rise from the dead. It, it, like, it's not just that he tells us we will, it's that he showed us. He was dead and he came back alive and he's breathing. Jesus rose from the dead and we know that we will rise with him. And so um, death goes from being our great enemy, the great enemy of mankind, Right, the great fear of mankind to being simply our servant. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this. He's talking about those who would, would boast in human teachers. And I follow Paul. I follow, I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas or Peter. Here's what he says. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. I remember hearing John Piper talk about this and answering the question, how is death ours? He says, the world or life or death, all are yours. How does death belong to us in Christ? Well, it belongs to us in, in that it serves us. What can death do to, to a Christian? Simply escort us to the presence of our Savior. Death can only serve us. It can't hurt us anymore. So we have nothing to fear. And, and just notice, notice it, it, the contrast, right? Of what, what, what can the secular view, what can the, the materialist view say to the existential questions? Hey, try not to think about those. Right, when, what, what, is a, what do Christians answer though? What do we say when, when we get depressed, when we get down? Because we do. Well, man, there's always, the answer is always some variation of, hey, remember what you believe, Think more deeply about reality, about what's true, about what Christ has done. You must have forgotten how he loves you. Right, we take reality seriously and it leads to joy. It leads to joy. Second, a book. A book, and, and the book we're going to talk about is the book of Psalms. The book of the Bible. It's in the middle of your Bible, uh, in the middle of the Old Testament. It's the longest book of the Bible, 150 chapters. And uh, the, the Psalms have, have always been the prayer book of the Bible. God's people have always learned to pray from this, the, this collection of poetry and songs and prayers. Um, and, and the interesting thing, one of the interesting things about the Psalms is that there is as much darkness as there is light. If you categorize different types of psalms, the largest category, over 65 of the psalms, are psalms of lament. They're psalms that cry out to God when things are going bad. Um, for, for instance, 
Um, Psalm 13, it says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Most of the laments um, have some element of praise in them. They, they have some, like Psalm 13 ends, that's how Psalm 13 begins. It ends with a, a praise and a reminder of, God, this is God, who God is, I will praise him. Um, there's one Psalm that doesn't, the darkest, the darkest of all, in all the Psalter, and that's Psalm 88. Psalm 88, and I want to read a large chunk of it to you just to, to, to show you the darkness that, that, that the Psalms, the Psalms really encompass all of, all of our human experience, all of our human emotion. This is Psalm 88, starting in verse, verse 8. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death, my youth, from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And that's how it ends. Right, darkness. So the, the Psalms encompass all of human experience. Right, we're, we're encouraged, I think, to feel and express all the human emotions. Right, hurt, lonely, sad, angry, afraid, shame, guilty, Glad, I, all of these things, we're encouraged to express them in, in, to God and in the presence of his people. But it's interesting in the structure of the Psalms uh, because the laments are more heavily weighted to the beginning, right? Then there's, so there's less and less laments as you go on. And then at the very end of the book of Psalms, Psalm 146 to 150, the last five, are, are Psalms of praise, right? They all start with Praise the Lord and end with praise the Lord. Right? Hallelujah. And this is what they, they, uh, this is what they, they express. Um, psalm 150, so the last of the Psalms, is a Psalm of pure praise. I just want to read it to you so you get, get the, the gist of it. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with a trumpet sound. Praise him with a lute and harp. Praise him with a tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Thanks, Dale, for doing that. Uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? It's just pure praise. It's amazing. And so the Psalms, they, they take seriously human experience, don't they? The whole range of human emotion, and they end in praise. Why is this? Why is this? I don't think it's, a, it's an accident. I think this is because when you, when you take into account all of human experience, the darkness and the light, the evil and the good, the beauty, the ugliness, the truth, the lies, we find that in the end, we will praise the Lord. 
And I think the Psalms culminate in praise because the universe culminates in praise. We were made for God. We were made to glorify him and we will praise the Lord. There is joy in the end. Though the sorrow may last for the night, his joy comes in the morning. And one day we will see the dawn of the Son of Man. He will come and all will be glory and light and praise. And so we have joy. We have joy. And this is one of the reasons why we sing. It's a foretaste of heaven. It's a foretaste of heaven. And we sing and we're taught by the Psalms to praise even in the worst of circumstances, right? And always, isn't there? Always there's the worst of circumstances going on in our church family. Always there's, there's a hurt and sorrow and sin and suffering. There's, it's always going on. You might say, well, why do we always, why do we sing every week? Well, it's because of this. Because we're told, we're taught in the Psalms to bring that to the Lord and to praise him. Praise him in the storm. The last example is a, a, a prison story. Um, and it's a story that you can read in, in Acts 16. Um, Paul and Silas are on a, a mission trip. It's going pretty well. Uh, they've met Lydia. God opened her heart to the gospel. She, she got saved. And they started a little church. Um, but they run into a hiccup. There's a, a, a demon-possessed fortune teller lady who starts following them around, screaming, yelling, these are servants of the Most High God. And she's yelling, really bothering them, disrupting everything they're trying to do. Um, and it says, and I love the humanity of it, it says, Paul was greatly annoyed, <laughs> uh, as you would be. And so he, of course, turns around and just casts the demon out, right? Get out of her. Um, and so, and the demon goes. This ends up being a problem because she was telling fortunes and making people some money. Um, and so they, the, her, her uh, you know, owners brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates, to the rulers of the city, uh, and said, These, they're disturbing the peace, Right? Uh, and the magistrates took them, it says, stripped them, um, ordered them to be flogged. It says they beat them with rods. And then they, they took them to the prison and said, watch over them carefully. So they, they put them in the innermost prison and put their feet in the stocks, treating them like violent criminals. And I don't know what your kind of frame of mind would be in that moment. Uh, you've lost everything. You're, you're bruised and bloody and beaten and you can't move because your feet are in the stocks. But this is where we pick up in Acts 16, uh, starting in verse 25. It says this, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. I love that, right? And that's joy, isn't it? It's joy. And why, why do they have joy? Is it because they don't understand the situation that they're in? No, right? If you're bruised and bloody and in prison, you can't deny the realities of that. Right? They understood where they were. They understood what they were waiting for. Probably they were going to be executed. Like they understood these things, but they understood something else, didn't they? And they took seriously something else. They knew the one who was in control of their situation. They knew Jesus. They knew that he works all things for good for those who love him, even this situation. And so what? They were singing. They were praying and singing. And all the prisoners were listening to them. I love that. It's like, they're, they're like, what's going on? Those guys are, these guys are happy? <laughs> it seems so strange. Verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken 
And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, right? His life's on the line to guard these prisoners. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with the entire household that they had believed in God. All right, Paul and Silas have great joy, even in the suffering. And what happens? God breaks in. Earthquake. Right, the, the, the jailer uh, be, being converted. His whole household coming to know, hearing the word of the Lord, coming to know Jesus. And look at, look at the result, right? The result was, was joy, right? He rejoiced along with his entire household that they had believed in God, right? Their joy led to God breaking in, which led to more joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength, right? And I think this means more than just it gets us through life. That's how I've always thought of it. It's like, yeah, how, and it's true. How would we get through life without God's joy, but I think it's more than that. I think joy is, is a weapon against the powers of darkness. I think this is how God uses it. Um, I, I think it, this is well illustrated in, in, uh, in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Um, all throughout, there's, there's, you, you notice in, in the books, uh, at some of the darkest parts, the darkest places, there's laughter. It's really, it's really interesting. For instance, there's one, one part in... Return of the King, um, when, uh, when Eowyn, who's, who's this, uh, this princess, this, uh, the, the niece of the king of Rohan, um, she wants to go to battle. And so she disguises herself as a man. Um, and she calls her, her pseudonym is Dernhelm. And, and she, so, so she can go to battle with, with her people. Um, and so she's on the battlefield and, uh, and the king is on the ground. He's, he's about to be killed by this uh, the, like, chief bad guy, the lord of the Nazgul. Um, and, and, uh, and she, she jumps in between, right, the, the bad guy and, and her uncle, the king. Um, and and the, the Lord of the Nazgul says this, hinder me, thou fool, no living man may hinder me. And then we read this. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Dernhelm laughed and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Love it. <laughs> Tolkien said in a, in a letter to one of his critics, it's precisely against the darkness of the world that comedy arises, and it is best when that is not hidden. Our joy, laughter, is a weapon. Right? Satan hates it. He hates our laughter. He hates our joy. A Wendell Berry in a poem has these lines, expect the end of the world, laugh, Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. Right? There, there's a power in, in laughter, isn't there? There's a power in joy. And, and I, think, I think Satan does hate it when we laugh. Heaven is filled with laughter. 
Hell, I think, is a very solemn place. And Paul and Silas, in the worst circumstances, have joy in the reality of God's control and his care. And that leads to God breaking in and to conversion and to more joy and to stealing souls from the kingdom of darkness. And he'll use our joy in the same way. Lastly, how does this shape us? How does, how does joyful seriousness, how does this value um, shape us? I, I think in four ways. We're gonna talk about one. And first is that, is that we, we don't have to take ourselves so seriously. <laughs> it's really a weight off. It's wonderful, isn't it? All right? I, I, we're not that important. We're not that special. <laughs> right? We're not in control. I'm not in control. But I know the important one, the one who deserves all worship. I know the one who's in control. And he loves me. And so we can have some humility. Um, G.K. Chesterton said this, a characteristic of the great saints is their power of levity. Angels can fly because they can take themselves lightly. Pride is the downward drag of all things into an easy solemnity. One settles down into a sort of selfish seriousness, but one has to rise to a happy self-forgetfulness. For solemnity flows out of men naturally, but laughter is a leap. It is easy to be heavy, hard to be light. Satan fell by the force of gravity. And I hope our church family is known for, for a happy self-forgetfulness. <laughs> right, we, can, we, can, we can truly know ourselves and know we, <laughs> it's not about us. It's about Jesus. We don't have to take ourselves too seriously. On the flip side, and in the next way it shapes us, I think, is that we can take others very seriously. Now, C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in the, uh, the Weight of Glory. He's talking, about, he's talking about, he says, you can't think about the other people's future glory, where they're, go, where they're headed, either to a place of, they're, they're, they're becoming someone of immeasurable splendor or someone of absolute horror. Right? Every person, every, where, where our eternal destinies, we're moving toward one of these places. And here's what he says in a famous quote. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom, whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Right, we, can, we can see each person that we interact with, right, not according to the flesh. Right? We can see them as God sees them, someone made in his image, someone with an eternal destiny, Someone who, who God has put in front of us so that we can love them. Third, how does this shape us? I think, this, I think it makes us emotional. Like, ooh, getting soft. Like, yeah, hopefully. Like soft-hearted. We, we, we want to we be soft-hearted. We want to be, like, we're called to it, aren't we? We laugh, we cry. Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is what we're called to. And in a church family of our size, right, of really any size, 
What does that mean? It means we're always rejoicing and we're always weeping, doesn't it? It's always happening. There's always joy. There's always sorrow. And we're, we're responding to each other and to God and to the world. We're responding rightly. We're open. We're vulnerable. We're able to, to engage. Lastly, uh, this shapes us in, in, in that we are an outpost of heaven. We're an outpost of heaven. We, 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 are, we get to, think of this, we get to invite people into joy. Aren't people looking for joy? Don't people want it? And isn't it so clear that they're just not finding it? Like they don't find joy in, in work or in pleasure or in success or in morality or in immorality. Like people are just looking everywhere for joy and they, they try to find it and they, they can't. You know how many people are on antidepressants? What percentage of people are on antidepressants in our country? Huge percentage. Right? We, people are looking for joy. They want it desperately and all the wells are dry. Well, what do we have? The spring of living water inside us. And Jesus himself fills us with his Holy Spirit. We can invite people where they can find true joy. Right? We, we can rejoice in the Lord always because of what he's done for us. What a gift. What a gift. And may God give us more and more of his joy. Let's pray. If you will, uh, just take a moment to respond to the Lord in your heart. Ask him what he's teaching you, where he's pressing on you. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for joy. Lord, we were hopeless. We were without God in the world. And you came for us. You sacrificed yourself for your enemies to make them your friends. Make us your friends. So thank you. There's no one like you. There's no joy like the joy that you offer. Lord, for the the people in here who don't know your joy, but who want it, would you give it to them today? Would you, by your Holy Spirit, shine into their hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? pour your love into their hearts. Would you bring them home? Lord, for all of us, we, we, we carry heaviness. We 
we don't know how to handle life so often. And so we need your joy. Would you restore to us again the joy of our salvation? Would you uphold us by your hand? Don't let us miss you. 